freezing cold, crashing through the wet vegetation, and like everything you own is already soaked. So yeah, you find us. We will. We would talk about it and just be like, "You want to have a tent day? I don't want to hike anymore." <laughs> and so you just find some spot that was warmer and sheltered. If we were in like a valley or underneath a a big tree, and just like blow up the pad and get in the tent and just like. Yeah. I had a bunch of uh, like public domain books on my phone, <laughs> and we'd try not to eat too much in the tent, but well, it's hard. Well, you would try not to eat too much. Yeah. I, would, I would just go through my food and be like, I'll you figure it out. You ate four pounds of jujubes in like three days. Welcome to the Hiking Through Podcast. I'm Erin Egan, and you might have noticed that the format of this podcast has changed to a greater emphasis on stories and experiences. We're focusing on the inspiration and the perspiration. And today's guests are Meg Pye and Constantine, known off-trail as Dana Pika and Ryan Bunting. They joined me for a two-perspective take on this year's thru-hike of the Great Divide Trail. They had quite the adventure. Wet and cold. And in this episode, we talk about hypothermia and the art of layering, getting lost and found, midnight munchies, big Nero's, and why you should always listen to Magpie. You can find this episode and all previous episodes at hiking-through.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcast and all the other podcast places. Enjoy my conversation with Magpie and Constantine. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Ryan, for for coming back on to talk about the GDT with your partner in crime, Magpie or Dana. Oh yeah, De- definitely. Um, thank you for having us back on. We uh, there's so much stuff around the GDT that I don't know. I, I really would love to see. I was with Magpie in a lot of these instances, and you get the feel from your partner when you're hiking with them, but getting the back and forth storytelling. I think there's a little something special in there. So yeah, thanks thanks for having us back on. Yeah, I'm curious to see how you remember this differently than I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are definitely going to be some moments in there. A little bit of hypothermia, a little bit of bushwhacking. So mm-hmm. yeah, there'll be some good stuff. Uh, excuse me, a little bit of hypothermia? Yeah, a lot of hypothermia. <laughs> too, too much. Uh, more than you would prefer on a hike, that's for sure. Well, and it seems like you both... I mean, certainly, Ryan, the videos are from your perspective because you're recording them, but you both were getting your fair share of the hypothermia as you were going along. Yeah, I think I was less badly hit by it because uh, I don't know if he told you this in the first interview, but um, I had to teach him how to layer. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) Okay, so he had two brand new thermals, one synthetic and one... uh, one merino yes. and he's like well i'm just switching them out i'm gonna keep one clean i'm like you will be exponentially warmer if you put on both of your thermals <laughs> and he has never encountered this concept before well he's like well but if it's cold you just put on a jacket i'm like over your t-shirt no that's not how that works well so i found i just get very stubborn when i hike so i got used to something got comfortable with being uncomfortable a lot of the time and I'm like, 
eh, well, I'll get through it. It's just not great right now. Yeah, it took me like three weeks to convince you that like the amount of discomfort you were in is dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a good thing you had a Canadian along. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely changed a lot of moments out there. Because those first three weeks I was wearing, yeah, merino wool. And it was just one layer and the weather and how cold it was, like I was always kind of hovering right around that brink of like, I'm going to need to stop and set up camp. Like I'm so cold. And then after I finally was like, okay, you know what? I'll try this. I don't really see how it's going to fully keep me as warm. The next two weeks were still freezing cold, but more bearable. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and you had another thermal with you. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you carrying it? You weren't going to wear it. <laughs> I wanted to have a clean one in camp. I wanted to have a dry one. I think I got kind of scared with being wet a lot of the time, like, especially from some previous hikes. I got really, really soaked, and I never had dry stuff for camp, and I would have very unpleasant times in camp. So I was, like, always trying to hold that one in reserve just in case I needed to get that warm thermal on. But I also like your technique. Yeah, well... We weren't dry anyway, so. Yeah, yeah. So what was it that you finally said to him, Dana, that convinced him to try it? Or did he just get so cold that he had no choice? Um, I think it was a matter of me wearing him down constantly about, like, why aren't you wearing two? You're cold. But on the second one, I didn't – actually, I don't think I realized that that's what he was doing until – Moose Moose River. Something like – We got caught in another inversion, and then – I'm like, this is so cold. Yeah, and I saw you pull it out of your pack. I'm like, you haven't been wearing them both the whole time. Yeah. And we had a discussion where I was, uh, I think I was absolutely incredulous <laughs> <laughs> that this is what you've been doing the entire time. I was like, this makes so much more sense. Yeah, because you would, I also thought, I thought Magpie was just staying warmer because I'm from the South and Magpie's a Canadian native. So I'm like, well, you encompass the cold you were born in the cold so like you know it and well and you are always colder than i am so yeah. i was like okay it makes sense even with all the layers that he's chilly but like once i figured out that you were not using your layers properly i think yeah you were willing to give it a try after like the second time i explained it to you yeah and magpie like when we've been going through a lot of these really really cold weather systems it seems like i was like literally fighting for each step just to not set up camp and magpie it seemed like you were being really uncomfortably cold but you're like oh it's uncomfortable but it's not dangerous yet and it seems like I was seeing that danger factor way quicker and I was wondering like how I kept hitting that threshold so much faster and I think we learned it might have been the layering system it definitely was (laughs) I mean the other thing too is I, I was born in Manitoba which is like negative 40 from like November till March. And so I just have a a deeper internal understanding of where the point is that you like should put on an extra layer before you get to the danger point. Yeah. And you maybe don't have that much experience with being frozen. No, I was, and a lot of the times I would become frozen, it would be the frozen point of like, this is super, super uncomfortable, but I'll power through it. Like it's not the danger threshold of, oh, this is going to make me stop. This is going to make me have to make a judgment call here. So I was always, I never got as deep into the threshold of the danger level of cold that the GDT provided provided us. <laughs> and, I, and I've and i always joked with Magpie too. Um, we kind of have an ongoing joke about, I'm like, do you ever wonder how I survived other trails? Yeah, I do. 
Stubbornness. I think that's a very valid question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is a valid question, and uh, I've talked to some other hiking hiking buddies, and they're like. Yeah, you would uh, walk off more cliffs, definitely, uh, if Magpie wasn't there. you get lost more. I'm like, I did. I mean, I did get lost a lot more. And it was just, yeah, just stubbornness would get me through it. And it's definitely more comfortable hiking with Magpie. <laughs> she's, she's a badass hiker. Yeah. Well, she also seems to be your compass. Speaking of navigation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There were many a time... Again, because it, the, the video is from your perspective, Ryan. There was many a time where you're like standing somewhere and you're like, well, I'm not sure if I'm going in the right direction, but I'll wait for 10 minutes. And if Magpie catches up with me, then I know I'm in the right place. If I, if she doesn't, <laughs> then I'll turn around and go back and see if I can find her. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a, that was a daily occurrence. This happened a lot, even on the PNT. Yeah. Wasn't there one time on the PNT where, you were like, no, no, it's this way, it's this way. I'm like, oh, yeah. Are you sure? Where was that? I don't know. It was some road section in Washington. Uh, but, like, it happened three times in a row that I was like, well, he seems pretty certain, so I guess I'm wrong. <laughs> no, never. He was never right. Well, And then uh, someone was like, oh, we listen to Magpie on the video comment. Yeah. So that's become a running joke where it's like, always listen to Magpie. Yeah, I always just... <laughs> I like to bumble into things. And like when Magpie and I first started hiking together on the PNT, we would start off a lot of the mornings together and then kind of open up to our own paces throughout the day. And a lot of the mornings, if I was in front, if a junction would come up, I'd just be like, oh, yeah, it, I mean, it makes sense it would go this way. And Magpie uh, at that time would be like, well, he, he looks like he knows where he's going, so I'll follow him in. After about five or six times of going down the wrong junction, she's like, okay, um, once we get to junction. You just wait. You <laughs> just wait. <laughs> I, I don't mind getting lost on the trail because I'm like, oh, I saw. The only thing you would play. have to do is just look at the map. Yeah. Well, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I usually oh, like to maps. figure it out as we go. Oh, the map. Oh, the map. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we have a good balance. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you didn't ever get truly lost in the GDT, I don't think. We got truly lost. Yeah. But only in places where it was kind of unavoidable. I mean, lost is a concept, right? Yeah. I'm thinking of a couple of times when we were, like, in a big snowfield, and we're like, I think we're supposed to be going to that ridge, but I really don't know. And Uh it's not helped by, like, the GDT gut hook, because it's such a small trail and not that many people do it, the gut hook. Uh, trace isn't super accurate, but it's accurate enough that it can trick you. Yeah. And so... What does that mean? Frequently. So, like, the GPS line, most of the time it's pretty close to where the trail is supposed to be, but there's frequently... It frequently diverges by, like, oh, it says we're supposed to be, like, in the bottom of this valley, but there's a trail here on the shoulder. But sometimes you really are supposed to be in the bottom of the valley. (laughs) (laughs) And so especially because we were encountering so much snow. Mm-hmm. If we were like, well, we're kind of off from where it says we are, but this seems to go the right way, and this is, like, easier walking than wherever it says we're supposed to be. Let's just keep going. And yeah. a couple of times, that cliffed us out pretty badly. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, a lot with the GDT is, especially that route finding on it, with the amount of snow, even if you were on trail, you wouldn't really know. Yeah, well, and even if you weren't, there's a bunch of places where there's just, like, not really any trail at all. There's yeah. maybe, like, 
oh, maybe a deer came here. I guess that's the trail kind of a situation. Mm-hmm. And my philosophy, we could go into some philosophy of being lost. Loss is really just a concept. What's your philosophy of being lost? <laughs> so, so, Ryan, your approach is it's metaphorical? <laughs> yeah. You're never truly lost. You're somewhere at some point in time. So you're moving forward or backwards. So you're not really lost. Yeah, that's a, a very um, postmodern way to look at it. You'll get yeah. somewhere eventually. Yeah. You just might not want to be at that specific point, but you'll definitely get there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, yeah, it was a lot of route finding together, and um, especially the GDT, we're both used to kind of, yeah, starting off the morning together, kind of having some good convo, and then opening up the pace, but the GDT forced us to kind of always be within eyesight. There were small moments that we would get out of kind of, yeah, eyesight, but besides that, we were hiking together a lot of that trail. Yeah, it was a change from what we've been doing before, because on the PNT and the AT, EZT, uh, mm-hmm. which we hiked together, yeah. we would frequently start the morning together, and then we both like to have sort of, you know, mental space and get the experience of hiking alone, even with having, like, the safety and companionship of a partner, mm-hmm. and so we'd just set a lunch meetup, and then we'd see each other for lunch and then hike together for the afternoon. Yeah. But on the GDT, it was just, if we got, if we lost, I... Uh, if one person got out of view, yeah, it was possible you wouldn't find them. And it was also really possible that, like, if you couldn't see your partner, they could easily get hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so we pretty much stayed within at least shouting distance of each other for the entire trail, which was a big change. Yeah, that definitely changed our hiking style. Yeah, I, I could completely see that. I mean, it is truly the wild frontier out there. You know, you could be lost and nobody will ever see you again. Oh, yeah. There are some places on the GDT that are so remote, especially in places, those places tend not to have any defined trail, that you come over some ridge and you're like, I might be the only person who's ever stood here. <laughs> like, nobody's out here. Well, the, the Jack Pine especially. Remember oh, when God. We were the, well, not the river. The but Jack on Pine top. Pass. Yeah. It was, was it after Jack Pine Pass? There was the area around the Jack Pine that Magpie and I were on top of this ridge line, like purely blanketed in snow. And there was this, like, cairn way in the distance, and that's not where the trail went, but for some reason there was a huge cairn up there. And we get there, and we're like, this feels like the cairn on the end of the world. Yeah. Remember having that feeling? That was Jack Pine Pass. Was it? Yeah, it was. It was just coming down the backside. And, like, yeah, you – the whole time we were up there, we were like, nobody's ever been here before. It's just this trailless wilderness. Yeah. And in every direction, you're surrounded by peaks and glaciers. And then we get over the backside of this crest, and there's, like, a five-foot-tall cairn. <laughs> that was so weird. It had, like, a kind of crystal-looking obelisk on top, too. Kind of a crystal-looking rock. Remember that? Yeah, it had, like, a big quartz chunk on top. Yeah. Yeah. It that So, like, there's stages of wilderness, and that stage just felt like, yeah, it felt like we were the only ones up there. Which yeah. We, which we were. We were. <laughs> well, and then we found out why when we got to the Jack Pine Swamp. Yeah. Because no sane person is going to do that on purpose. <laughs> no. Is the, is the Jack Pine Swamp the place where, Ryan, you hand the GoPro off to Magpie and then you walk across and are sinking like a foot into the mud? I think that was the beginning. Okay. Yeah, that was the beginning of it. That particular stretch of trail is about 10 or 11 miles long. You cross the river at least 15 times. Oh, women it too. It's this big, mosquito-y, lazy river, and 
just completely brushed in on all sides by like willows and bulrushes and mud. And if you uh, if you get too far away from the river's edge, you just like walk straight into like hip deep, warm, <laughs> decomposing, smelly swamp. Yeah. Yeah. What do you call it? A it wasn't a bog. It was a peat. Oh, like the muskeg. The muskeg. Yeah. <laughs> that was a very interesting start to the morning. It it didn't smell pleasant, and it was it felt. It didn't feel pleasant. It was claustrophobically overgrown and just nasty. Yeah. It it just feels like like a horror movie come to life. Like your imagination could go so many places in that. Oh yeah, it definitely felt like the swamp thing was gonna come like charging out of the bushes and just like suck us down to the mm-hmm. quicksand depths. In moments like that, I don't especially the Jack Pine, like you're so in it that at least for me, I don't know about Magpie. This would be interesting to see. I don't, I don't have the imagination of what could be in that swamp with me or what could be in that river with me. Because I'm just so, just trying to get through it. Like it's so tough that I'm just like, okay, I need to find the mental energy and the physical energy to keep pushing through these. I was still cold, <laughs> and I was layered. It was cold that day. It was very cold. That was annoying. And so like. At least, yeah, I don't have a lot of imagination of what could be in this swamp with me, do you? I don't think so. I definitely get creeped out at places on trail, but in the jack pine, yeah, it was just so tough. And I was just so honestly pissed off at the trail at that point (laughs) that I was just like just barreling through branches. And I lost my head net in the middle of a bushwhack, too, and the mosquitoes were thick. Yeah. Some of the worst mosquitoes I've experienced on trail. And like... I, I was, I was just mad. <laughs> <laughs> the, the jack pine that day actually led us to another creek crossing, which was kind of the perfect little ump, like topping on the end of the day. Remember Pauline Creek? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you want to tell, tell that or you want me to? Well, I don't know what story you're going to tell about it. Okay, so you do the jack pine. It takes all day to go those 10 or 11 miles. And then... You have a little bushwhack to climb. I think it's Little Shale. Um, little Little, Shale, Sh- Hill, little yeah. Shale Hill. It's a pretty good kind of climb. So you get to the top and you see Big Shale, which was our goal that day to get up and over that. And so we came down Little Shale and we hadn't crossed the river and we were celebrating not crossing a river in a while, a couple miles. <laughs> so we get to this little creek that there was no comments on it, nothing about it. It's just called Pauline Creek. and I get there a little earlier and Magpie, um, we had taken a break on top of Little Shale and I, we were talking about camp that night and we're like, well, if this creek is fordable, I'll be on the other side. I'll set up camp. If it looks a little sketchy, I'll wait on this side until you get here and we'll cross it together. So I get there and I'm scoping it out and it looks deep, but crossable. And there's a little sandbar or gravel bar in the middle. So I walk about waist deep into the creek and it's it's moving pretty quickly and I get to the gravel bar and on the other side, it's about 10 to 15 feet and it just straight drops off. So there's no getting to the other side without swimming. 
And so I, I'm just waiting around in this creek for like 15 minutes, like yeah. up the gravel bar, down the gravel bar. And it's like, like filthy and full of mud. So you can't yeah. see the bottom or really like get a sense of how deep it is. And I'm just freezing cold. I'm like, I want to cross this creek, but there's not a good way to get across. Yeah. And of course it had been raining on us that day too. So yeah. we're like, well, maybe the creek swelled with the rain. So when you caught up. Well, and the other thing we were thinking is a lot of the um, creeks and rivers in the the area that we were in are glacial fed and so they're much lower in the morning yeah because the glacier the ice freezes again overnight and then throughout the day it melts and runs down so we mm -hmm. found kind of a crappy camp spot on it the other side of Pauline. it wasn't great no. uh camped woke up in the morning we go down <laughs> and the gravel wire is gone gone <laughs> it got deeper <laughs> it rained overnight it poured and so when we get up we're like wow you can't even you can't see the gravel bar. What yeah. do you do now? Yeah. So it turned into, instead of half a swim, it turned into a full swim. Yes, yeah, so we swam oh. about 10 feet of it, and it was freezing. Yeah. It was even colder <laughs> than it had been the day before. So we swam across, and we were like, do we want to just set up camp here mm -hmm. and just call it a day? So then we went over Big Shale Hill after Big that. Shale. And it was freezing because we had just taken a dip in the river. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. How... Are you guys swimming with your packs? Like, how are you guys doing that? I unbuckle the chest and hip strap and then just, like, put my electronics in a plastic bag and then zip that into my chest pocket. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you just, just, just go. Doggy paddle. Yeah, I mean, with with the creek, like Pauline Creek, the current was slow enough that you kind of just push off, keep your toes on the bottom of the river for as long as you can, and then just sort of launch yourself towards the bank <laughs> and hope hope that the current doesn't take you too far down before you hit the other side. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that current wasn't too bad. Um, yeah, with swimming, you just unbuckle the hip belt in case it does weigh you down. Yeah, so you it, can drop it if you need to. Yeah, it depends on how long the swim is. And like, if you were going into something with rapids, you would want to really prepare a lot more. But Pauline Creek, especially, it was moving. It was slow. wide, but yeah. it was pretty slow. Yeah. Yeah, it was still moving, but it wasn't like, oh, if I get pushed down 15 feet, I'm gonna hit an embankment of a, like a waterfall. So like, even if you got pushed down 20, 25 feet down the bank, you would still hit the other bank, and you had time to kind of doggy paddle across to that bank. Okay. So it was it. It wasn't a case of, oop, I need to take the pack off or I need to push it in front of me or anything like that. Yeah, I would be, I don't normally do that if I have to swim just because mm -hmm. I get concerned about if Losing I, if I lose the pack, I'm really screwed, especially out in the GDT where it's not like, well, I'll get to camp in a day and I'll be hungry. It's like, we were out for that section, I think was ended up being 11 days. Yeah. It was longer than we anticipated. Yeah. So, and that was day three. So if we had lost one of the packs, we would have been in some serious danger, I think. We already we already were in serious danger by the end. <laughs> the last three days of that section, we actually, I had a power bar a day, and then we split a couple of dinners because we had, like, no food left. Yeah, we were expecting it to take eight days. Yeah. Which actually brings up a, a big question for me, because from what I could tell from the videos, there were a lot of very long sections and mm -hmm. yeah. from the comments that you guys were making on the videos, generally things weren't going to plan. So no. 
No. So how did you prepare yourself for that by carrying extra food or I guess food would be the big thing that you would need for the extra days out there? Yeah, I think I usually default to carrying a little bit of extra food just in any section, unless it's something like the PCT where it's, you know, two days. You're like, well, I can be hungry for a morning. But yeah, I think towards the midpoint of the hike, we started to stock up more. Yeah, I, I personally, I like to, on any other trail, I would like to have like a bigger Nero into town and be completely out. So I'll always purposely pack less than I need. And on the GDT, um, for those longer sections, the places we had to resupply, it was like weird resupplies. So like we weren't able to fully resupply on what our go-to food was. So like coming out of Jasper, that last section, that was 10 days that we wanted to do it in seven. Um, I think I had like two dozen bagels. Like yeah. I had like a block of cheese. I like Canadian the- grocery stores seem to confuse you a little bit also because you're like, I couldn't find this thing. And I just pull it out of my pack. I'm like, this? Yeah, you But yeah, so I, my packing was a little weird and I think my body's just a little weird too. Like sometimes I get more energy on trail from hitting that deprivation point and pushing it farther. And my body will function off of that, like those last three days in that section. Yeah, one power bar a day. Um, and it will function really well, but I know Magpie doesn't. I get pretty cranky if I don't have enough to eat. I get I get pretty mad. <laughs> so yeah. How so you last three days. Uh, it was rough for both of us, I think, because we had already. It was so um, intense that yeah. last section. The last section of the GDP is at least at least seven days, but realistically ten. And so, and it's hard. Yeah. It is. There's no point in that where you can just sort of set the legs to cruise and go. It's constant effort. And so I think we were both feeling pretty worn out yes. just by by the whole trail up to that point. And then one of the hardest sections is at the end. So yeah. we were I was pretty I was pretty tired. I was pretty done. <laughs> yeah. And in that section, we took three Nero's in that 10 days. So we did. Well, we took two tent days. Yeah, two tent days and then a Nero crossing the Smoky because it was just so brutally cold. That's right. Like, we, a lot of the time, we could have gone farther and hiked longer into the day, but it was just so brutal, brutally cold. And we had kind of that memory of a misweek past when we both really had that hypothermia bad that, like, anytime we would make decisions quicker about how the cold was affecting us, like, we were getting close to the point again of, like, the body shutting down and it would scare us quicker than if we hadn't had that experience. So we were making more judgment calls of like, Oh, 15 miles. I've been so cold all day. I fought it. I, we need to camp. Yeah. I think that was smart too. I, I don't think that we called it too early. I, I think we, I think that we made the right choices when we did that. Yeah. So when you're talking about that section specifically and you say Nero, because usually, typically, when I hear people say Nero, it means that they're going into town. But oh. you're not no, going into Nero. town. <laughs> no, no. It was uh, It was one day I think we did. It was actually the day after the day that we crossed Pauline Creek. It yeah. was like we were soaking wet. We get up to the top of this climb, and it's like 8,000 feet, 7,000 feet. It's freezing. And it's so cold that it's not raining. It's just like mist that turns into ice when it touches you 
And we got down, got down the back of that and we were both just like, yeah, no, we're not going any farther. It's too cold. We're too wet. All our gear is soaked uh, and everything's condensing inside our packs too. So and even stuff that's supposed to be dry inside a dry bag, it's just so humid yeah. that it's now covered with ice that we just set up the tent after six miles at like those noon. Were hard, those were hard six miles. After though. noon. And we just went to bed at noon. Yeah, and <laughs> magpies also had to get used to my loose definition of Nero. Yeah, uh, you and your quote-unquote big Neros. That's an oxymoron. You know, and he's like, oh, yeah, we neroed into town. We, like, got there at, like, 4 o'clock and did 27 miles. I'm like, that's just a day. That's just a day that you got to town. It's not a Nero. It's a big Nero. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I use the term Nero very loosely. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So... Talk to me about these these Neros and these this tent day as you as you call it, which is what it sounds like, you know, blossomed year or yeah, blossomed year seven days into ten or eleven day uh, hike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean those are just you don't want to do it, but the uh, it was always weather conditions. Yeah. It was always this this mist that would come down and make it just freezing cold crashing through the wet vegetation and like everything you own is already soaked. So yeah, you find us, we will, we would talk about it and just be like, you want to have a tent day? I don't want to hike anymore. <laughs> and so you just find some spot that was warmer and sheltered if we were in like a valley or underneath a, a big tree and just like blow up the pad and get in the tent and just like, yeah, I had a bunch of uh, like public domain books on my phone, <laughs> and we try not to eat too much in the tent. But well, it's hard. Well, you try not to eat too much. Yeah. I, I would just go through my food and be like, I'll you figure it out. Four pounds of jujubes in like three days. I was really impressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, GDT fueled. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just like be in the tent. And I think, at least from my point of eye, I mean, we had conversations around this. Like, it's not so much that we didn't want to hike anymore each day. It was the fact of if we keep pushing ourselves, we're going to go past that uncomfortable threshold into the decision is going to be made for us that we're going to have to stop. And we might be in a position that it's not safe to stop because you can't really pitch a tent on the side of a really steep mountain. So it was stopping when we were always getting close to that threshold. And then we had a lot of conversations about these, our hiking styles are very different than that. Like, well, both of us like to wake up and hike all day until the kind of sun is setting with like very minimal breaks and stopping so early in the day. I don't know if the guilt's the right word, but we both had like a sense of like, I guess, it didn't feel I guess right. guilt. Yeah. yeah. Stopping so Not guilt early. exactly, but just like, this is so weird. Like we should yeah. be hiking right now, but we can't. And we would be fighting that feeling while in the tent. So like we would get in the tent and an hour would go by and our bodies would start to warm. Um, maybe. And we'd be like, well, maybe should, we should hike on. And we'd be like, but we have to pack everything up. Yeah. And then like one of us would get up to pee and be like, no, it's still really cold it's out there. Cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was fighting a lot of, what we had become used to with our hiking styles and just having to kind of find the comfortable position in the situation we were and kind of just go with the flow there. Yeah. Well, and that is the other thing that you mentioned where with the GBT, there's limited, limited flat areas where you could set up a tent. And so we would often, and especially because it would 
tend to thunderstorm around 3 p.m. I thought it was just thunderstormed all day. I never well, knew. Sometimes, no, remember, we talked about it. <laughs> yeah. So we would frequently find ourselves in a position where it was like, this also limited our mileage, too, because we would be somewhere at like 6 or 7 o'clock. And it's northern Canada in high summer. So, like, the sun is not going to set till 11 o'clock or midnight. So there's really no constraint on how long we could go. But we'd have done a shorter day than we wanted. But if we looked ahead, we'd be like, okay, well, if we keep going, we have to commit to summiting this. And that would line us up to be, like, on the top of another peak right when the thunderstorm's going to hit. And, like, we don't really want to do that. So I guess we're going to stop having done 18 miles here. And then that would sort of dictate our miles for the next couple of days. So it was like, oh, if we don't make it to this area where we can camp, we're not going to be able to make it to the next one. So that means our next three days are going to be shorter than we thought. That That was a big part of it. It was like your miles would get cut off because there was a next big obstacle that you're like, I can either try to tackle that today or I can tackle that tomorrow. Like if it was a river crossing, if yeah. it was a big mountain, a big pass that you had to climb, or you looked on the maps and you're like, this is going to be a bushwhack. Like you knew there was an obstacle coming and you're like, even though it's maybe early in the day, if I get into this obstacle, I and might. We, and we can't get through it. Or if we get yeah. into this obstacle and it gets freezing cold, we're not going to have an option to stop and bail. Yeah. And we'll be stuck in a dangerous situation. And so we frequently had to make the safe choice, which yeah. meant that by the end of that section, but also most sections, we were starving. Most sections, yeah. Was the Gut Hooks app for the GDT or the Gut Hooks map, I guess, did it give you good information about where you could find good tent sites and or, you know, dangerous areas, that kind of stuff? Uh, there's <laughs> no. some information on there. What was Gut Hooks combined with the um, GDT guide? Honestly, the guidebook uh, that they have on the website, I forget the guy's name, Dustin Links, that's Dustin what it is. Links, yeah. That is the best guidebook I've ever read. He was really uh, he good. He was really good. He, he, I guess, lives in the area and has really detailed notes on like what to expect and even talks about like, Oh, there's a good campsite on the other side of this Creek. If you can make it there. Yeah. And so that was really helpful. And especially combined with gut hook, we would look at kind of the topo and see what we could see and then check to make sure that that wasn't a bushwhack or some kind of like exposed situation. But I, I just didn't use gut hooks a lot anymore. I mean, it was just, you would use it to check your location, but for the most part, there was so many factors that this year changed a lot of the, like the rivers and changed a lot of the terrain that you could read the topos, but you're also like, there was a day that there were like four or five river crossings that weren't, weren't in, there on Gutsuck at all. So you took it with a grain of salt when you were looking at the next day. You're like, okay, they pointed out these obstacles, but they're most likely going to be something else within that in between yeah yeah but there were there were some campsites especially in some of the wilderness areas they uh would like you to camp in the designated campsites but um Mm -hmm. it's so backcountry like nobody's gonna nobody's gonna know but they did have those wilderness camp areas and old horse camps and like old logging camps like listed on gut hook and those were useful i was surprised in 
in watching the videos how many of those camps there were, like in the middle of freaking nowhere, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I and I tend I tend to just film those because at the moment I think they look cool because I haven't seen any other signs of civilization. So I'm like, oh, look at that! It's a couple two by fours that box out a little patch of ground. <laughs> but yeah. it's uh. I think the videos reflect more of how many there were than actually in like, on trail. Because I don't it think we there seems we like there's more of them. Yeah. I think because you also he just doesn't film the like six hours of nothing between the <laughs> between them. He's like, oh, cool, a camp, and then the next shot's like, oh, cool, a camp. I film I film a lot, but it's just kind of what my mind gets grabbed by. But I mean, a lot of those are equestrian camps, mm-hmm. so. There's a lot of horse trail in that area, and there's a lot of, um, especially in Kakwa Lakes area, there's a lot of uh, snowmobiling in the winter and backcountry skiing. And so those are there for people who are coming in on a horse or, or accessing it in the winter. Yeah. So you would find that, but there wouldn't necessarily be any trail connecting them mm-hmm. just because they're for winter use. Right. I would say 80%, I would say 80% of the time we had an L&T kind of campsite. Um, you could see that, there was not a lot of foliage around it, and you can see it was a flat spot, and we would just try to be leave no trace as possible. And then, well, and most of the wilderness areas allow dispersed camping. Yeah, they also have these old logging or horse camps. Yeah, but I would just say more. It heavily leaned more towards finding a suitable camp spot than those nice kind of pre-designated ones. Yeah, I, I have to say though that the the favorite marker that I think I saw out there was the, I think it was a shovel an old shovel in the ground with a little flag on it. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) That was interesting, actually, because that was in an area where it looked like they were building new trail. And so, and then we're like, oh, wow, there's like trail here. It's kind of roughed in. And then, of course, we go from hit the Alberta border and it disappears. (laughs) We're like, "Uh uh-huh. One of my favorite trail signs was, I think it was in... What was the river? Was it the, it might've been the Moose River. So there was a trail sign on a tree and literally the place that the trail sign was, whoever had put it there must've done it in a low snow year because it was like over the head deep in water. And I'm like, Hey, Magpie, you want to go grab that shot of film for it? We had just crossed the river. We had just crossed the river. So we were already soaking wet. I'm like, Oh, come on. We can go hop in one more time. And she's like, no, no, I'm not doing that. That's just crazy talk. Yeah. Yes. A lot of the, a lot of the time, kind of how I got through the situations was kind of just joking around and doing a lot of stupid, stupid comments. And I would get a look from Magpie every so often, like not the time, not the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just frustrated for a lot of it. I was frustrated too. It was, it was, it was very difficult. It was yeah. complete. Completely unlike anything we had done before these. I think it's that, definitely the hardest trail I've ever done. Yeah. And I think that's what hit us too was that we couldn't set a pace. Like the fact that we both used to higher miles and then getting being like, well, we hiked all day and we did 25 or something. Well, not even. We would hike all day and do like 18. And yeah, we'd be like, like that, you know, yeah. we weren't slacking off. Like no. 18 for us would be kind of a lazy day with lots of breaks, but. On the GDT, a lot of the time, it's like you're pushing as hard as you can no all day. Yeah. And, like, you've done 20 miles. <laughs> yeah. Did that create a level of frustration, or did you sort of just give into it? At 
first it was frustrating. I think for me, at least, it was frustrating at first. But after, I would say un- until about, like, Peter Lougheed after that. Yeah. We were both like, okay, well, this is just how the trail is going to be. And, like, what was difficult about it was not being able to predict how long you would be in a given section. Yeah. That was stressful just because you couldn't, especially getting close to town, you couldn't look and be like, oh, we're 35 miles away. We can, like, definitely Big definitely get there in the morning tomorrow. Like, I can look forward to a hot breakfast uh-huh. or, like, I can look forward to having a shower tomorrow for sure. We look at the map and be like, we're 35 miles away. That yeah. could be... We could get there tomorrow morning. We could get there in two days. <laughs> remember getting in. Remember getting into field. Remember that time crunch. Oh God! Yeah, that was. So the day that we pushed into the town of Field, um, we didn't really know what was in the town, and we didn't know kind of what the food situation was. But we both had been running out again of food, and we had to do four passes in the morning to get to the downhill that would lead you to the road that you walk into Field. Yeah, um, and so it's. it's says that it's a like an old fire road that leads you to the highway and yeah. so when we hit this road after doing four passes after going doing four slow, passes we're like oh, we're gonna start start cruising we're gonna just crush we're gonna get there by <laughs> seven like yeah we're this is gonna be easy well no the fire road hasn't been maintained in <laughs> years years blow down city it, yeah every five feet there's a massive blowdown. yeah and so after all that we get out to the highway and get cell service mm-hmm. and my phone's about to die so i like plug it in we're scrambling and i we're out of food starving i call the hotel just to make sure and they're like well what was it they closed it eight. at eight yeah and in, they're like and we're the only restaurant in town <laughs> yeah and we have, we have no food and so they're like so i made a reservation and they're like well if you can get here by eight yeah and we have, we'll see you and then we have six miles and i look at the time and it's seven twenty. yeah oh, well, Jesus. it was like it was a little before that. It was seven fifteen. Yeah, something. but we pushed. We ran. I think <laughs> yeah. we made it with like ten minutes to spare. Yeah. Oh, that burger was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's like if we don't make it there by eight, we not only don't get to eat, but also like we can't check into the hotel. Yeah. Right. So yeah. 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 Would you have been able? I mean. Worst case scenario, would you have been able to go to a grocery store or a convenience store and just grab crap? Nope. Field is so tiny that they have... Trading post. Well, yeah, they have a gas station that closes at 6. And the hotel, and then they had a cafe that was, like, just breakfast only. But it was closed. And then it turned out to be closed for COVID. Yeah. So that was it. That was it. Those (laughs) are the only businesses in Field. Yeah. And we have no food. I could picture if you guys hadn't have made it, I could picture you guys either trying to go to sleep as soon as you, well, you wouldn't have any place to sleep either. So in your tent, cursing the day. Yeah. It was, so the, that day was good for, good for me personally, because on that downhill leading to the fire road, like my brain started to de-thaw and this was kind of my first, it was like four days of like my thoughts very were moving very slowly. You were like, yeah, had mild hypothermia for about four days. Yeah, so like on that downhill, like I actually was able to have kind of like fun thoughts again, and I was I was happy. I was I was very happy regardless. Like I wasn't 
on the brink of like just just surviving i was kind of i was really enjoying it again and i was still enjoying it while i was up there it was just very difficult like my thoughts were molasses so i was happy yeah that was the same section where you made the really stupid decision to go into avalanche terrain after i specifically warned you not to do that oh no we're going going back to it we uh yeah i i was like this is so weird that you would just ignore me on a safety issue and then by the time we get to the end going into field you're like i think i think my brain wasn't working right i'm like no real (laughs) no shit (laughs) i'm gonna plead the fish i i I don't want to go back into this but on the yeah on the way in i was just like head in my head like i'm gonna eat this burger and it's gonna Mm -hmm. be so good and so i was crushing down that road too so crushing miles when we uh when we got the uh when we found out it was a race against time i was like we're doing this yeah this is happening i'm not missing this burger <laughs> i've been thinking about this burger for two days and it had like blueberry jam on it or something? it was blueberry barbecue sauce yeah, it was really good it was very good yeah yeah how I mean, it feels like you tell that, and it feels like you had flames coming off of your shoes at that point as you were booking it down <laughs> yeah. the road. I think it might have been some of the fastest miles we've ever done. Yeah. At least for me. I, we were, like, right at the edge of jogging with the packs. Magpie's always been a faster road walker than I am. And so usually when we get to, like, on the PMT, when we get to road walk, I'm like, all right, I won't see her for another, for half the day or at least until the road walk ends. But I'm like, well, I'm not going to miss that burger either. <laughs> and she kept out distancing me. But I'm like, I look down at my feet and I'm seeing them. I'm like, I can't move faster right now. And then you keep getting farther and farther. I'm like, where is she getting this energy from? So, yeah, she was burning it down there. Oh, I was going to eat that burger. Oh, you ate that burger. Oh, yeah. I could have ordered another one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Circling back to the, the navigation thing for a second. Because, Ryan, you were talking in your videos about the fact that your, I don't know if it was your phone, if it was your U.S. network on your phone, if it was something else, but you were having issues being able to check your your uh, location and GPS and potentially using gut hooks and things like that. Yeah. Which, which I guess circles back to the question of, in those situations, why would you ever question Magpie's navigation? <laughs> <laughs> I just like to question. It's just fun. It's some fun back and forth. I'm like, oh, it could go this way. Well, because we always know I'm right at this point. Yeah. And so, well, that's not true. Occasionally we run into like genuine navigation stuff where we're both trying to figure it out. Yeah. But mostly it's just a joke where he's like, I think it's this way. It points entirely the wrong direction, which is pretty funny. And I found with the joke, it used to be, that she'd be like, oh, yeah, we can go this way. And now it's just like, no, no. we're not, not going to go that way. No, you're wrong. And I'll still walk down it for a little bit, and then I'll turn around. And... Be like, come, you'll come and catch up to me and be like, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> no shit. Yeah, so, so with the navigation, though, with um, kind of gut hook not grabbing anything for me, the area that it was dying on me was actually the most kind of well-tread path. It was in, like, the the backcountry areas of Banff, yeah. Yeah, so it was lucky lucky where it died because there was still different pieces of trail, and you'd still go into the snow passes and have to pick your best route. But with the passes, you're just, like, you're going to a pass, so... You can see it. You you know where you're going. You know where you're going, and then if you see trail way in the distance, once you get to the top of that pass, down off of it, if you even if you don't have the GPS marker... You can look at your top of and be like, 
well, it's still leading in the direction direction that it should be going. If it's not 100% the right trail, it will lead into something that keeps me in the same direction. So yeah. it, it was lucky lucky where my GPS kept dying on me, and your, yours was working. Mostly, yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason, too, that my navigation skills are stronger is I think it is the network. Going yeah. from Canada to the U.S., it's got a different – this is nerdy, but it's got a different protocol for how it picks up signal. Mm-hmm. And so frequently when I'm in hiking in the States, if I don't pay for a U.S. cell phone plan, I don't have the little blue dot on gut hook. And so I'm I'm really used to navigating yeah. without it, just using topo and, like, land features to navigate and then, like, guessing where I am based on how far I've gone since my last time I got a location. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty normal for me to have gut hook location go out for five or six hours at a time and just be like oh okay well and you also have a compass tattooed on your arm that's true but it doesn't work i mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's so handy yeah (laughs) you point that arm at the mountain and it shows you the the way right (laughs) (laughs) so basically uh, you've kind of developed a sixth sense about things about reading your location, about understanding where you're supposed to be going and and just re-coordinating yourself, I guess? Yeah. So I, I based like doing like landmark navigation and also just kind of dead reckoning because I know about how fast I'm hiking. I have a pretty good intuition for like, oh, okay, I'm doing about a two and a half mile hour pace. So yeah. It's been two hours since the last time I had a location. So that means I should be about here and the trail is going west ish and I can kind of see a clearing in the trees. So I think that's where I'm going. And, uh, it's, you know, it's not a hundred percent ideal, but yeah. it works okay. pretty well, especially if you're in an area where it's like, well, the trail's generally trending northwest. So as long as I don't veer suddenly to the south, it should be okay. And you might do more switchbacks or you might take a 10 minute detour and that 10 minute might not even be a detour. It might just be you're picking the route that works best for you, especially in the snow. And yeah, you're still going the right direction. And like Magpie says, you know, generally how fast you're going. So you can look at the baseline maps, even without the GPS and be like, well, I went two and a half and then use the gauge of kind of measuring that and be like, well, I should be in this vicinity and go from there. I'm just thinking I'm just thinking about that in my head and, and thinking about being being a little dot in the mountains of Alberta and BC with wilderness yeah. all around me and going, <laughs> Yeah, I think it's that direction. <laughs> That's a lot of the GDT for you. Yeah. <laughs> going, mm, I think it's that way. Well, if I I run into a cliff, I guess I'll turn around. (laughs) So it would be, it would be more frustrating trying to stay a hundred percent on, especially with Godhook, that red line in the snowpack. Because if you're trying to like stay purely on that, you'd be checking your maps every one minute, and you would be like, "Well, there's no trail. How do I stay on this line?" So it's yeah, it gives you the Freedom to yeah, we're, we were talking about it as CDT rules, like the Continental Divide. Uh, that was the first hike that I did. That was the first long distance hike, and I pretty quickly learned that like the got hooked, the red line is just a suggestion. <laughs> 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 I 
as we were talking about on this hike that um like oh cdt rules apply don't follow the red line too blindly yeah and tnt too yeah. i almost got sucked into the ocean trying to follow that red line <laughs> yeah yeah you did yeah yeah so if anybody does the pnt don't go around was it cape scott no scott's point or something scott's point the red line says hey go around this point like with the tide and there's a over the bluff trail and i didn't see it so i'm like yeah i guess i guess i'll try and i took a couple of steps out into the water and then just went completely under (laughs) under the water into the ocean and the tide was going out so it started pulling a little bit so I'm like okay I'm not gonna go around this point so I come back in and I see the bluff trail and I I didn't know where Magpie was I hadn't seen it like ahead. four hours so I go up the bluff trail and I catch up to Magpie and she's at the top I'm there. like where were you I'm why just, are you wet I'm just soaking wet <laughs> I'm like don't do it don't go around that point yeah and her response to that was uh thanks yeah, she knew the right way. Well, I, I had already done it correctly. Yeah. So I was like, no, really? Yeah. Her response, it looks like you made, made a bad decision. Yeah. Her response was kind of like, yeah, you did something wrong there. I was used to this by now. Yeah. We've yeah. been hiking together for the whole trail pretty much. Yeah. Went the wrong way. <laughs> but that was a good look line. It was the red line, but the red line told him to go around the point, but common sense said, (laughs) the tide is in. You shouldn't do that. (laughs) So basically, Uh, the one time you followed the red line, you almost got sucked out into the ocean, and that has uh, convinced you to never follow it again? No, no, because Gutthook is really good for, like, I didn't use Gutthook on the AT. I used the uh, AWOL guidebook. But like, there's one, there's one route on the AT, so you would follow the red line with gut hook. PCT is the same thing, like, you would follow the same route on gut hook. CDT, it starts to, sometimes the line's not fully true. Well, and I did, we did it in different years. I think yeah. it, I think it improved significantly between the year I did it and the year you did it. Yeah. So it's for the lesser known trails of, sometimes their ground truthing is a little bit off, so you're still, on the trail, it's just like, there were points on the PNT, sometimes it looked like somebody held the GPS in their hand and, and just, just threw it down the- it off a cliff. <laughs> and you're like, how? You, you don't go down that way. So, no, you can't. Yeah, you can't. So it's it's using common sense. and Yeah. 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 And often in places where it's a little bit off, it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So. <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm pretty glad that I did the CDT as a first hike, actually, because it really forced me to develop that skill of, like, using the map, yes, but also, like, common sense of, like, looking at the trail, looking at the terrain, and saying to myself, like, what's the most logical way to get over this range? Where would I go, you know, looking at this if I was... If I didn't have this map, what would I think would be the best way? And then double-checking that using the map as sort of a, a check on my logic and intuition instead of following the map and then trying to figure it out when things go wrong. I think I, I personally really prefer that approach. And that's partly why I like to do these lesser known trails because they really reward that kind yeah. of do it yourself, like figure it out ethos. And it's fun for me. And the fact is you purely sometimes can't go that route that the line is saying go. Yeah. Like you just simply can't, you would fall off a cliff. Yeah. Yeah. But even when the line's accurate, I find it 
to be more rewarding to just like figure out where I have to go. And then if I'm not sure, use the map to check. Oh, yeah. Just kind of get into the hiking mode and be like, well, I'm on a trail. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. That's how I get lost. It's, it's, yep. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I love the PCT, but, the, like, zone out and just hike, you know, the trail's right there. It's a dirt highway thing. It's yeah. fun, but it's more interesting and, like, more mentally stimulating to be at a place where figuring out the trail is a little bit of a puzzle. We're also saying that from the kitchen table right now. On the GDT, we were missing the PCT. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's it's rewarding in its own sense, for sure. Well, I would I would expect that when you have to navigate that way, it keeps you much more present because you are really having to pay attention to how far you're going, what you're passing, what are what does the terrain look like around you to be able to place it in the map, to be able to know where you are or guess where you are and so forth. Yeah, I think that it that's that is why I enjoy it too is because it, it forces you to be really immersed in the environment and uh, really pay attention to all of the cues that are present. I don't know. I can't think of a good example right now because I'm not in that mindset. Footprints in the snow from animals. Yeah, animal footprints, like subtle variations in the way that the land is sloping. Like I notice when I'm not kind of blindly following a really well beat down trail, I'm much more, there's like a background awareness of which way is north, which is kind of cool. It kind of feels like you're one of those migratory birds with a magnet in your head where you're like, north is that way. Can't tell you how I know. But I'm I'm certain (laughs) North is this way. And so I think it gives a much more transformative wilderness experience of allowing yourself to use all of those, those mammal animal senses that we evolved to have. You're using parts of your brain that don't get exercised very often in like ordinary off trail life. And so I find it to be very, soothing like you kind of have to shut off the part of your brain that's a constant internal narrative because you need all of your processing power to interpret the signals that are coming coming in from the world and that also kind of ties into since you are using a different part of your brain as in just going down the trail there are points that it becomes mentally exhausting because you're using a new muscle like you're still using your brain but you're using a different part that you don't use as frequently so like I noticed in those moments of like a full day and it would be like a full day of navigation. Like you never could just kind of go and just sit back into your pace and just really soak in the nature. Like you had to really be aware with each footstep. And when you transition from that to something that you just go and kind of cruise, you realize like you were using a lot of mental energy to do that type of navigation and there's like a I don't know how to I don't know how to describe it it's just a different part of your brain that you're using and it's it's mentally freeing but it's also uses a lot of your mental energy yeah oh sorry so, so you, would be, you would be more tired mentally from a day of doing 50 miles navigating than you would be doing a day 30 miles of just cruising yeah yeah right it's a real thing to be using mental energy like that. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I think you put it in a lot more condensed version of what I was trying, yeah, trying to say. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think the sense of just being an animal in an environment is the reason that I enjoy it. The 
the ability to like switch off from sort of the concerns of civilization and just be uh, in this really like ancient primal survival mode of like, how much food do I have? Where is the water? Where am I going? And like being alert to the environment in a way that engages all the senses and like is very embodied and present and like out of your analytical mind is I think the reason that I hike, I think that experience is so rare and difficult and that headspace of being completely immersed in this sort of timeless sense of um, where am I now? Where am I now? Where am I going? Is yeah, it's um, something that's not really available as a mental and emotional experience in most, most uh, situations except when you're on the trail. I hope that sentence made sense. I lost the plot. No, halfway ab- through. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely makes sense. And, and I love your, your kind of animal analogy because it's interesting, obviously in the rest of the world, we are sort of the, the top of the pyramid in terms of the predator, but out there you're not as well. No. Just part of it. Yeah, you're you're powerless to really change anything, especially like you're at the mercy of nature and you have to just surrender to what's going to happen. Yeah. How is that surrender? I mean, this is not your first trail, so I'm assuming that you sort of surrender to it a little easier, maybe? Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Magpie does. Ryan, maybe Vitamin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, how is the, the like, do you, do you, what's the question? I, I guess the question is, do you, because you, you're right, there is a surrender to it. There is a surrender to we could get lost. There's a surrender to we could get really cold and we could be in a dangerous situation. There's a surrender to, oh, shit, there's a fresh grizzly track or a fresh wolf track. And we are walking on the same path that they are walking on. There is a surrender yeah. to it all. And I can see, you know, some people would fight that, Ryan. And some people. <laughs> <laughs> you call it as you see it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but there's also, there's also the, the power in surrendering to it and, and accepting it and embracing it. Yeah. I think it's not. I'm, maybe I'm, I'll uh, be revealed to be a liar by the video, but I, <laughs> I don't think it's terribly difficult for me to get into that mindset of um, just being present for whatever the trail gives. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know, it's refreshing for me, actually, to not feel as if I need to be in control. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, if you just let the trail... Okay. Yeah, within a couple of days, I think, uh, you start to just, just let it go. But I mean, the other thing too is that we're saying this, but the contradiction is that with through hiking, especially, you also do have a lot of like intense analytical focus when it comes yeah. to mileage and planning and food. And, and so there is a lot of like conscious control and, and conscious decision making that's involved at the same time. So I don't know. Both things are true that. At, at once you're like very sort of quantified you're saying like I've done three miles per hour and this is how many miles I need to do to get to the next place and very precise mm-hmm. and on the other hand you are sort of 
letting go into the experience. You plan your food? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, Magpie, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to literally take that question because I don't have nearly as in-depth of a thought of that. But, yeah, it's, it's very freeing out there, and I'm kind of blown away that you actually plan your food. You've seen me plan my food. I don't know why you don't start doing it. <laughs> By the end of the trail, you're like, ah, oh, magpie. Mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you did eat all your cookies on the first night, so. Oh, yeah. Huge recommendation is if you pack out a cookie bag, do not eat it all the first night. Yeah. That value will never At be the same. At least for your hiking will, partner's sake, don't yes, eat That value will night. never be the same. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the smells, man. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I know. Speaking of food, I know that you were you, Ryan, were telling the story of the midnight munchies and waking oh, up yeah. in the morning to a handful of uh, juju of oh, gummy bears, gummy yeah. bears, maybe whatever it was. Yeah. Did you guys have that, or did the midnight munchies happen often? Oh, it's it's every night for me. Um, yeah. Magpie, Magpie gets into it. Occasionally, but yeah. you don't eat very much during the day. Mm-hmm. I actually have no idea how you even, like, survive trails just because of how little you eat when you're on trail. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> I like to push the body. Yeah, okay. But, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't eat very much during the day, and so your body wakes you up at, like, midnight, mm-hmm. starving. Yeah. And so he wakes up, and I just hear, like, Russell, 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 Russell. <laughs> and then he's like, you know, just cramming cookies into his mouth as fast as he can. He even cramming still, cookies into he the even still midnight munches at home, which is, uh. I don't like to admit that. Well, yeah. Yes. It's there. It's there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Last night you woke up at 3 a.m. and went and you came back with a bag of MMs. <laughs> that was last night, wasn't it? What? Yeah. Yeah, the midnight month has become, it was a very beneficial habit on trail, but off trail it is not a beneficial habit. Like on, so like the ATM PCT, you get to towns soon enough that you can calorie pack in there. But the CDT is when it really started for me is like Colorado. My body was just burning through so much that it would wake me up at midnight or like one o'clock and say, put something like, you need to eat something because we're starving here. And I would eat a Snickers bar and it would be like a pacifier and I'd instantly go back to sleep. And that kind of transitioned ever since the CDT 2019 hiking season. And then this hiking season, the midnight munch has been strong. Yeah, no, he midnight munches every night. He like, he like buys food specifically to eat at midnight (laughs) on trail. Yeah. Do you ever like midnight munch in your sleep where you don't remember Waking up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot. Oh, oh, yeah. He'll be, like, fully asleep, and I'll, you know, wake up or something, and I'll just see his asleep hand reaching into the food bag, and then just, like, <laughs> and then he rolls over, like, holding his food and goes back to sleep. <laughs> Do you guys share a food bag? No. No, <laughs> no we don't. <laughs> that, was that sounds much note. safer. Uh, one of the trail angels, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, I was just saying I I would think that that would be dangerous if you guys were sharing a food bag and he midnight bunches. Yeah, yeah, one of the trail angels in Coleman actually was like really shocked that we didn't buy our food together. Oh yeah. But we actually run really differently, like have really different metabolisms, and so there's a few things that we both share in common that we like to eat. Like we'll split tortilla bags if mm-hmm. 
you know, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I can only buy a package of 10 and I need five. But generally speaking, uh-huh. I don't what think this is unfair. Uh, I, I think I'm a lot healthier in terms of my food choices. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah. Jealous. I'm jealous. I, and I actually think about balancing ratios of like protein, slow burning carbs, fast burning carbs. Mm-hmm. Like I try to like pack out some fats every once in a while if I'm not like on a super hot trail where they're going to go rancid. I like the meat bag. Oh my god, dude! <laughs> that was that was something. We'll have to tell that after. Oh, the meat bag. Yeah. yeah. Well, basically, what happened is that he he was like, I have a brilliant idea to save space and garbage. He put all his like beef jerky and pepperoni sticks in one Ziploc. Yeah. And then, it this was on the GVP, right? I think it was on I the think GVP. So. It might be the. It might be no, the it was GVP. the G. It was the GVP. Yeah. Yeah, and. Uh, it was like a six-day section, and by the end of the rancid. section, it was so rancid. Oh, you tried to eat it too. Yeah, it was nasty. <laughs> yeah, Magpie's kind of plan for food is actual planning food. I get as many calories as possible for if it was going to be a five-day section, and then I'll eat like ninety percent of those calories in the first two days, and then the next three days just go off very small amount of food. Yeah, <laughs> so I just calorie pack and hope it works out. Well, and the thing is, like, you can binge and just be fueled off that all day, but I know that, I mean, I I burn hot, like, my metabolism is really fast, and so if I don't specifically tell myself that I'm going to need to eat a snack at 10 a.m., and then another one at noon, and then have lunch, and then, have like, I I plan out, like, at 3 o'clock, I'm going to have a granola bar, because I will not notice that I'm hungry, get really cranky, Mm -hmm. and then, like, feel my pace slowing down and get mad at myself. So it's like if I don't eat small amounts of food frequently, my hiking just suffers. Or mad at Constantine. That too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of need to plan. Yeah. And I feel a lot better and I have a much better experience when I am really deliberate about my food choices. So if we were to share food, his eating style would have to change. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to you talk about midnight munching and – all of the food you're consuming and consuming so much of your food in the first three days and so forth. I'm not understanding how you make it through three days on only a power bar or something like that. And particularly when you're talking it's about victory. Yes. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't, I don't really understand either. I did starting on the PCT. I sporadically started trying to fast while through hiking just to see if my body could push that type of mental and physical strength. And I found within the sporadic fast that for some reason, my body actually does better when it knows it's deprived of that amount of food. And then I'll eat like crazy in town and I'll eat like crazy the yeah, first couple of days out of town. But I feel more sluggish when I have like a, I don't do lunches on trail, but if I would well, have. Well, you started a, doing lunches with me, and you were like, "Hmm, I kind of like this lunch game." The concept of it is good, but like afterwards, I feel more sluggish. Huh. So my body—it's just weird. It's yeah, weird you're just time. a weirdo. I have no <laughs> idea how he survives these long sections either. It honestly baffles me. Yeah. I mean, he also loses a ton of weight though on yeah, trail. Yeah. You, you lose forty pounds over the season. Well. The people juice from the PNT didn't help. Yeah, that didn't help. Yeah. He uh, he drank some water, no filter, no problem. It turned out it was uh, <laughs> underneath a hot spring where people like to soak. Yeah. And he he had 
crypto sporidium or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I was emaciated. I was really, really scared. You couldn't keep food down for like a week. Yeah. So the last three days of the PNT, I tried to burn the crypto out by not drinking or eating. And I had to drink water. So like I would take a sip of water a day, but like my body, anything that got put into it, my body would instantly say, this is not good. This is going to be a problem. So well, you didn't already... throw away the contaminated bottle well, until <laughs> I noticed that you were still drinking out of the bottle. You'd put the dirty water in. And it was like, maybe that's why it's like any better. Yes. <laughs> so I was, yeah, I was 160, already very small for my frame at that point. And then in those three days, I lost like another 10 pounds. Yeah. Which was not healthy. <laughs> no. So, yeah, I don't know. The body just works in mysterious ways. <laughs> well, I think the other answer as to how you do it is just stubbornness. Yeah, that's a huge part, I think. <laughs> you basically just refuse to change. No, no, I'll, I'll, I love change. It's just, that's kind of what. He refuses works. to let, he refuses to let a lack of food stop him. <laughs> and it, it's, it's really what works for my, for some reason, it really works for my hiking style. Like, when I eat more during a day, it affects my miles differently. And it, I don't know. It's, it's it's what works for my hiking style, and there's been points that I'll be like, well, I do need to eat, but it's few and far between. Yeah, I don't know. The GDT definitely has more moments of... Remember the Pizza Hut night? Oh, God. <laughs> See, you just keep bringing up all the fart stories, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he ate a whole Pizza Hut pizza, and, you know... Magpie says I can't have pizza. You're not allowed anymore. to eat Pizza Hut if you're sleeping in the same room as me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I lost my train of thought now. Yeah, that was a, that was yeah, a story. Yeah, it was rough. Yeah. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> it, was, it was bad. So, yeah, my body will talk back to me when I throw a lot of stuff into it, too. Oh, yeah. So, on the GDT, I think you had more moments of, of actually feeling like the tank was empty and you needed to eat more. The last day, I found, like, a... I don't know. There was, like, a moment... I, like... I like finding that mental strength when you have like nothing left in the physical tank. And it's kind of like a, for me, it feels like a spiritual moment is when we had that last day on the GDT, literally we had been eating like nothing. And when you reach past that threshold of like, I forget what I compared it to, but it's like breaking through the bottom of a well, like you think it's completely dry. And then all of a sudden you hit something deeper and, you find this strength that you're like, well, I never knew it was there at all. And it's kind of like an overwhelming feeling and it's really cool. So maybe, maybe I'm just chasing that. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I definitely get that too. Yeah. But I mean, the other thing too is the whole GDT, I was nagging you to eat more because you were hypothermic and I was like, being cold burns more calories than you think. Mm-hmm. You need to eat more. You'll be warmer if you eat. Mm-hmm. And it turns out I was right almost every time. I also don't like eating when I'm cold, though. But you, yeah, I don't like it either. But like, in terms of hypothermia treatment, one of the first things you do is make sure that they're hydrated and fed. So I have hot sauce. You did have a lot of hot sauce. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, I was right, and then you would completely forget until the next time you were cold, and I'd be like, "You need to eat something. It'll raise your body temperature." Oh, I don't know if I would forget. I just didn't want to it was just so cold yeah that's why you needed to eat (laughs) yeah we could go in that kind of we could go in that circle for a while how many times did you have that conversation do you think out there oh every day Uh, yeah most days i would say yeah Yeah. i remember on the gdt there was 
someday that happened to be easier than others. I don't remember. Which, I don't know. I don't remember which day this was, but we, we had an easier day and we got to camp and we had an actual conversation about something other than like safety, navigation, <laughs> or just one of us being like, fuck this. And the oh. other one being like, yeah. It was after saddle. Yeah. Uh, it was after the saddle of. But like we actually had the mental energy to like talk. Yeah. About not trail. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that, we were both like, wow, I don't think we've actually had a conversation in like two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was really nice. I know the campsite you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. When you were out there, and and I love Magpie how you are the animal identifier. Yeah. You guys would come across these footprints these animal footprints and did that cause you any pause as you're looking at this fairly fresh grizzly grizzly print or fairly fresh wolf print or that kind of thing so the wolf didn't cause me any worry really because wolves are like pretty shy they they don't really want to mess with humans and they're smart enough to know that like there are humans around and avoid them. Remember there's a day that we saw like five wolf prints that we followed for like two miles. Yeah. There's like a pack. It, it was, wasn't just a single. It wolf, was a though. pack. I think it was four wolves, yeah. but yeah, it was, that was pretty cool though, because that like you, cool. you don't see wolves a lot. And generally speaking, they're like not aggressive towards humans. And you, even if they're around, you won't see them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that said, I did get stalked by a wolf in Republic. So maybe I should be <laughs> more respectful of them, but like, for the most part, wolves don't worry me, especially if they're in a, you know, in in a setting where you expect to see them. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that stalked me in Republic was like two miles away from town, so that freaked me out because that's a low, they that's a really wolf that's emaciated probably. Yeah. Well, that's even worse, right? Because yeah. they really wolves shouldn't want to be that close to town, yeah. so something was up with that. But the grizzlies, I mean, I love following them. So they were really they helpful because they know where the trail is. Um. <laughs> You just got so used to it on the GDT. Like the whole area is is prime grizzly habitat. You're never not in like grizzly country. And so we actually had a day that we didn't see a grizzly print until like noon. And we were like, that's and weird. We were like, are we on the GDT? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that's super weird. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, with the grizzlies, I guess we didn't worry about it too much. No, we had bear spray, and if you run, it's just kind of yeah knowing where you are so you know you're in their environment and you know they're around there and yeah you're in their space so you just be aware of that and as you go down the trail I think I had talked on this with you is there's that feeling of knowing when a big predator is around you like you can feel if something changes and kind of yeah I don't want to say vibes but you can change like it there's a subliminal sense of being near a predator, I yeah. think, which is one of those cool senses that you develop when you're doing that. Like I was talking about that, like actively engaged sort of yeah. feeling of being an animal in the wild. You can, you can tell usually when there's something big around, even if you can't hear it or smell it. Yeah. Some of the bears that we did see, um, we would stop and I don't know what would have made us stop besides the fact of we would stop for like, two seconds and we would look around and there'd be two bears like on top of the kind of shale just kind of walking around and what else would have made us stop unless we felt something kind of internally around that yeah yeah Yeah. so you just you just be aware of yeah the surroundings big animals don't really worry me like i'm respectful of knowing that 
they're there, but kind of if you're going out, especially in these remote areas, you're in their territory. So just you know, be respectful of what's around you. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, is like, especially with grizzlies, like, you know, you pay attention and stay alert and keep a clean camp if you can or camp in areas where grizzlies won't go. But the other thing is um, if a grizzly really wants to mess with you, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And so there's no point in worrying because, like, if you're going to get attacked by a grizzly, you can't prevent it. It's a huge, powerful animal that will kill you. And so, you know. Yeah, you can do the necessary can, techniques to try to mitigate the attack, but it's still, you're, you're kind of powerful. If you're going to get attacked, then you're going to get attacked. Yeah. And that's just how it is. So there's no point in worrying about it. Did you sort of take that approach to the GDT, and I guess through hiking in general, but the GDT specifically in terms of, you know, a lot of people can worry ahead of time or or live in their fear ahead of time of what could happen, may happen, and that kind of thing, as opposed to just stepping back from it and saying, you know, I'll worry about it if I need to if it happens. Yeah, I'm kind of a generally optimistic person, even in moments that Magpie said there shouldn't be optimism here. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, yeah, you know what? Um, we know that there's going to be a lot of snow. We know we're going to be cold. And we know we're going to be in really remote territory. And we're both experienced enough to kind of plan around that, but then also go into it and be like, okay, we're going to have to change plans each day. And that's that's at least what I thought. Yeah, I mean, I think the mindset is, I mean, I grew up doing, like, Girl Guides, which is, like, the Canadian Girl Scouts and, like, being outdoors, and, and I have a fair amount of experience of just, like, having to contend with a natural environment that you can't control. And so my approach is I'm much more analytical and more of a worrier than Constantine, but, like, I've taken all the steps that I need to take in order to to feel prepared. and beyond that i don't see the point in being afraid of something that i can't control especially you know if i know that i've i've done everything ahead of time to make sure that i know what i'm doing and that i'm not going to be the re- like i'm not going to be um responsible for a bad situation i'm i'm a t- on top of my own safety as much as i can be that the fear of the unexpected or the unknown doesn't really come into it. No. Yeah. From this conversation, you wouldn't get that you're more analytical than me. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're lucky that she is, Ryan. I know. When, I have no idea how you survived without me. Oh, I mean, I know we've already said this, but yeah. I really don't know. Remember La Coyette Ridge, the cornices? Yeah, where I was like, don't step on those. And you're like, this? <laughs> well... I was far back from the corner. No, the avalanche, though, when you said don't speak. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you're, like, underneath a huge cracking slab of snow, and you, like, turned to me. I was literally about to yell. As if you're about to yell, and I, like, (laughs) waved my hands at him and, like, yeah. and he, like, put his head down and keeps going. I learned a lot about snow on this trip, and Magpie Magpie was a good school teacher about snow on this trip. There's, There's a clip of magpie pointing at a cornice with a checking pole and you were being like safe not safe <laughs> safe but not safe i'm like yeah okay i, I understand yeah well, it's really uh really lucky that i started getting into backcountry skiing last year because mm-hmm. uh the, i took a, a course on avalanche safety as part of that and so i had fresh in my mind all of the ways to identify potential avalanches and avoid them 
Oh. Not that it helped much because we ended up going through a lot of unavoidable danger zones. <laughs> that first section was the most, though. It was really scary. Yeah. Yeah. That one was the most uncomfortable. It well, you, most you didn't know at the time that it was frightening. You're like, doo doo doo, <laughs> and I'm freaking out. Well, it's just me in general. Even now that I know it's frightening, I would still go doo doo doo. But I would be aware of the danger yeah. at that point. What was the, was this an avalanche snow issue or was it something else? Yeah, it's a snow issue, yeah. yeah. The first week out, we got up into the ridges and they were just like really socked in with this, this old rotten spring snow. And so if for anyone who doesn't know, a cornice is like an overhanging uh, ridge of packed snow that's like really unstable. And so if that breaks off, it can slide and, and trigger, you know, a whole the whole face of the mountain to slide down. So there was plenty of that, plenty of like the melt was just getting started and and a lot of unstable snow that was hard to identify because everything was snowy. So you kind of had to know what I was looking for in order to be like, judging from the topography, like that's not stable. We need to stay to the left side of this ridge or whatever. And I don't know why that first section was as snow, more snow packed than because the steepness was the same as kind of the entire GDT, but it was just more, it felt more rugged. Well, right after that section, we went and did like the lower section into Coleman and but that took us five days. And by that time, then we got a little bit more into summer, more into summer. Yeah. Yeah. But I just remember traveling straight up like snow fields that were, I guess it was because having to go straight up. So like a lot of the passes were still very snow packed, but it wasn't as steep. You could pick a better line, but these ones were, you were climbing snow packed. That was like, to me, it felt like a double black diamond. It was literally like a wall of snow that you're climbing straight up. Yeah, like hand, hands and knees kind of yeah. climbing straight up. Yeah. So like you're standing in a toehold and you're looking down and you're like, don't fall. Yep. Yeah. Did you guys have to bring ice axes with you? Yes. Yes, we did. We we uh, got whippets, actually, which are, I, I like them a lot, but uh, they're like a trekking pole with an ice axe head on it. Mm-hmm. So it's like a multi-purpose tool. You don't have to like, stop and get out the ice axe and carry a trekking pole at the same time and you just you know you just yeah. pop the cover off the ice axe head of the trekking pole and you're ready to go yeah and once again Aaron, from this conversation you know that i don't get into my stubborn ways but i actually had micros this time too yeah you did i learned how to use micros <laughs> i convinced myself that my footsteps were more confident without micros because i had already done the pct and cdt in relatively high snow years with those passes and once I got through them without micros I'm like yeah I'm not going to use them and I quickly realized that micros are they're your friend well you were really stubborn about not using them actually yeah for a while and then I was like just put them on it'll make me feel safer yeah and you put them on and then five minutes later you're like I really like micros I really did enjoy them this makes downhill so much easier I'm like yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've been telling you for three days yes yeah so I found a friend on that trail. Micros were definitely nice. Yeah. He's just so the opposite of a gearhead. He almost, like, fears the gear. He's just like, well, I've never used it, so I guess I don't need it. Mm-hmm. And I work in a backcountry outdoors store. So I'm, like, can rattle off the, like, relative weights of various brands of micro spikes. <laughs> and so I'm like, no, you're buying these and you're bringing them along. <laughs> <laughs> It's almost a little bit like East meets West or North meets South. Yeah, we talk about this sometimes, how opposite we are. 
<laughs> I think it's good though. We've, we've talked about this too, yeah. that like our, our areas of strength complement the other person's areas of weakness and yeah. like it, it meshes in a way that's good instead of being oppositional. I think so too. Yeah. I, I, I think that we, uh, we definitely each make each other stronger hikers. Did you get to a point between the two of you, particularly on the GDT because there was a fair amount of safety issue going on and that kind of thing where, cause I, the sense I get from you, Ryan, is that you do like to joke around a lot. Um, and that's part of mm-hmm. your hiking process just to keep yourself up. But there's obviously because of the safety issues on the GDT, there are moments to joke and then there are moments that have to be serious. And did you guys get to a point where you had a shorthand for, no, this is not that moment. Like we need to be security. We need to be safe. We need to not talk right now or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. I don't know if we had a code word, but I'm extremely blunt and straightforward. <laughs> and so what I would be like, Constantine, you need to focus. Like <laughs> this is dangerous. Pay attention. <laughs> Do you understand? Yeah. Yeah. And and he knows when to take things seriously too. Yeah. And I think we can read each other pretty well too. And like, while I like to joke around trail, I do respect those moments that you have to really be in tune and focus on the trail. So like the moments that would become dangerous, if I go quiet on trail, that means that something is requiring all my attention and is having to be within that moment. So I think we read each other pretty well. And yeah, I do, I do respect those dangerous moments and realize that, Hey, it's not the time for joking, but Quickly after you get out of that section, I would come out with uh, a couple jokes. Yeah, I think there was a good balance. I can't think of any. I, well, the only one I can think of is when you ignored my avalanche advice that one time. But yeah, for the most part, <laughs> for the most part, I think um, we have a good rhythm with it. Where like we're we're both. I mean, even though I, I say I'm the more analytical one, like you have a pretty intelligent sense of when you really need to pay attention and, and we're both smart hikers in that way so oh, it was easy to find you know we both know when yeah when when to buckle down and when it's okay to just hang out yeah and the jokes would be more in the sense of like this is really uncomfortable and kind of just like if it was a blowdown on top of snowpack on top of kind of just going slow it would be kind of just hey this is kind of an uncomfortable situation but it's not dangerous time to joke and it would be yeah. it would be prodding the moment of like to get out of that kind of like suck mentality at points where you could get sucked in and be just like in your own head of oh i just went through this crazy thing on top of this pass of when i was frozen and now i have blowdowns for the next two miles so it just helps change the brain a little bit and i think magpie enjoyed parts of it well i think i'm funny too you are funny <laughs> yeah yeah like sarcastically melodramatic self-pity is kind of my vibe (laughs) you called it a giant's game of pickup sticks or something yeah i did yeah Yeah. oh god numa pass yeah and then i started singing numa numa the entire time yeah that that was a joke that i eventually had to be like shot (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah you started singing the numa numa song as we were going over numa pass it's still in my head i could go into a rendition thanks i'm good okay yeah It, it feels like, like, as you guys said, that there's a, this great balance that um, that helps to get through the whole thing, both, you know, to keep it fun, to keep it 
uh, laughing because obviously there are there are occasions when if you're not laughing, you're crying type of thing to be dramatic. But but that having that blend is important to just keeping you going forward. Yeah, it it really is. And a lot of the times, especially on the GDT, it being just very tough on both of us. There would be times that, yeah, we would get into camp and like a joke or two would go through and you could see it wasn't really what's in the mood. And it's kind of like, okay, we kind of just have to embrace, embrace this feeling and kind of let it, let it pass. And I don't know. It was just, it was just a change and we did find a good balance. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Did you see anybody else out there while you were? <laughs> um, One person, Yeti. No, it wasn't Yeti. It was Yeti's friend. So there was somebody ahead of us who was leaving comments on gut hooks. And we were, who was calling himself Yeti Dubois. Um, I thought it was Dubois. No, he's Quebecois. So Yeti Dubois means like Yeti of the woods. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but we were always, what we were wondering, you know, how is this guy doing these miles? Cause he was like leaving comments on like weird days and we couldn't figure out where he was ahead of us. And then he would skip mentioning something that was really obvious and then would make some comments on it. And we were like, why are we going to catch up to this Yeti character? Um, and we didn't actually ever catch him, but we ran into his friend in Banff. Right, it was right before Citadel, we got Citadel Pass. Citadel Pass. Yeah. Who was, yeah, was like, oh, we've just been walking the road. <laughs> yeah. Oh, remember when you on Citadel Pass, you learned how to breathe properly on uphill? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, I hold my breath. So that was <laughs> I'm not fun. the only stubborn one here. Okay. I'm not stubborn. I uh-huh. just didn't realize I was doing it. Oh, so stubbornness is not finding a pattern and just doing it because it works in the moment? No. <laughs> All right, fine. Yes, I was. Is it stubborn debating stubbornness? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You can't you can't fight and say you're not stubborn. Um Yeah, and then what we met uh one group of day hikers. Did we? Yeah, on the section going into Coleman. Oh, yeah, we exclaimed that there's other people out here. Yeah, and that was in a really populated part. Like, that section actually between whatever it is in Coleman, the section going into Coleman is, like, the easiest, or leaving Coleman, maybe. It was Upper Basil, Upper Basil Pass area. Barrel Pass. Barrel Pass. Yeah, that, that, that's uh, the easiest part of the whole GDC. It was mile 150-ish. Yeah. Yeah, I forget. So we ran into a couple, a group of guys that were out for like a weekend hike. Yeah, and they turned around because of the because of the snow. And then we got there and we we're like, oh, this was, is not that bad. And we have been going through snow and we're like, wait, you turned around because and of the, the snow? snow? <laughs> well, and then when we got there too, we like looked at it and we're like, this guy is choosing the worst possible line to oh, all yeah. of the snow. Like, what was he doing? There's like a dry patch like five feet away. Yeah, I didn't understand. Yeah, I didn't get it. But no, but, that's yeah, not many, those not are the many only people, people we met. Yeah. Yep. Was Yeti the same person who was leaving notes in the logbooks along the way? There was only one logbook. There was three or four. Really? I missed a couple then. There was one in the beginning. There was one on top of the I guess he was. Yet. He was the only one who started before us that year. And he, I don't think, was intending to do the whole thing. So a lot of those comments in the logbook actually were from like a year ago from when Peanut did the GDT. So when he, is this, yeah, his name's Peanut. Yeah. Yeah. So when he came through and did it, you would see in, I think it was four or five logbooks, you would see other 
day hikers that were very sporadically mixed in. And then the next through hiker you would see would be Peanut. Yeah. Because, yeah, we started super early, so we were at the front of the bubble. So there were probably through hikers that rode in it behind us, but that was the next through hiker we saw. I think there were a couple through hikers, but of course, with the border restrictions this year. Yeah. Most through hikers are Americans, just because Canada doesn't have a ton of long distance through hikes, and, and so Canada hiking is hard. And Canada hiking is hard as shit. Any trail. Um, and so most people who have will have known about the GDT and want to through hike it are people who have through hiked other trails. Other trails. It's not the Canadian trail. And most of those people are are uh, Americans. Yeah. So I think the class of 2020 on the GDT this year is just going to be really small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Barely double digits. Yeah. I think in any given year, it's barely double digits. Yeah. I think it's... It's, start, it's starting to grow. Yeah, it's like it's, 25 and 30 people a year. Okay. Yeah, it's still very, very small, but it is starting to grow for sure because people are looking for that next remote experience and after... Well, once you triple crown, yeah. like, you do the PNT and then you do the GDT. Yeah. That's kind of what you do. That is kind of what you, <laughs> Yeah. What did you... How did you find your gear working out there? Oh. Well, what, what's your oof about? Not great. I, I remember we were in the Jack Pine River and I was, I think I was filming and I was talking to Magpie. I'm like, yeah, we should do a gear video on what worked and what didn't. And then the next second I'm like, well, a lot of stuff did not work, <laughs> but I don't think it was the gear's fault. Like these, I have an Arc'teryx rain jacket, which is a really good piece of gear. The thermals I have are really good. The gloves. Could have gone better gloves. Before. We needed to upgrade the gloves. Yeah, yeah but that, the, was, that was a problem. Besides that, I don't think it was the gear's fault. I think it was just, it was getting thrown at so much buckets of water each day that you can even have the most rainproof gear, but you're still going to be wet. Yeah, the conditions that we were in were not conducive to even really good ultralight hiking gear working. Like, you would probably have wanted, like, legit mountaineering camps and, like, a heavy rain jacket and... Mm-hmm. We could have carried that, but that would have, you know, further reduced the miles. I had some issues, now that I'm thinking about it, like, I had issues with my pack, because I'm an idiot, and I accidentally ordered the one ULA pack that doesn't have a place for a removable hip belt, and I didn't (laughs) think about this until I, like, pulled my old hip belt out of my old pack and went to put it in, like, the day before we were leaving, and was like, no. (laughs) So... Uh, I did like a home stitching job to get that in and that didn't work out very well. So my pack had a hole in it, so it wasn't even remotely waterproof. Mm -hmm. And also like the hip belt would ride up and like I I couldn't get it to fit properly. Mm -hmm. And so the whole time in the video, it looks like I don't know what what I'm doing because my pack's like hanging off at weird (laughs) angles. And I'm like, oh, people are going to think I'm such a noob. (laughs) But I do know how to pack. I do know how to fit a pack. Just for the record, for the record, I know how to fit a pack. Yeah. Um, and then my, I, uh, am fairly frugal, let's say, when it comes to gear, and I hate to throw things out. And so I had this ancient puffy that I had used. It doesn't have any balance. It's done. It's done. Uh, that I had been using for about five years, first as a bike messenger in Montreal, and then as like my skiing jacket, and as my through hiking jacket, and it was, just it it needs to be retired and so it had barely any insulation left in it so that was an issue for me mm-hmm. yeah and then I, ha- I tried a new brand of shoes also which uh oh yeah didn't work out 
Yeah, but weight savings be thrown out the window. If I could have found a portable heater, I would have carried that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad we carried all the layers we did. Yeah, bring more socks. I mean, we had three pairs of socks apiece, and it, it just never dried out. Like, our feet were – that was one of the toughest moments each day. Just well, <laughs> I think we had an unusual situation, too, because usually – even if your stuff is really soaked, you'll have like one day at least. Or an hour. Or an hour where the sun comes out and you can actually dry stuff. Mm-hmm. But for us, not only did it rain or snow or hail every day, but there was, I think, only twice on the whole trail where the yep. sun came out enough and it was dry enough that we could actually spread our things out and dry them. That was a good day. Like I usually dangle my socks off the back of my pack to dry them out, but it was raining the whole time. <laughs> You guys were out there pretty early in the season, too, right? Yeah. We were out pretty early. Not stupidly early, I, I don't was, think. I so like, in a normal year, it would have been, yeah. even in a high snow year, yeah. it would have been okay, except for the fact that this unusual weather system rolled through. Like, everyone that we were talking to was like, oh, this is really... <laughs> that helped us so really much. weird the locals are like oh it's really weird it's been raining for a week it's like yeah yeah they're like it's usually a lot warmer than this we're like oh good we're not idiots <laughs> we just got unlucky <laughs> um and so yeah it was like record rain and flooding in jasper we yeah. ended up having to roadwalk like and the copper region too 80 miles and then when we came back on the road trip back out here we passed a lot of the areas that we had been on trail but kind of paralleled on the road there. So when we were driving back, if we stopped, um, we would kind of pick some local phrase and be like, hey, how was the weather here? And it'd be like, yeah, record rain. <laughs> it's been really cold and weird this summer. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So, I mean, when I was talking to people on, like, the GDT Facebook groups and stuff, they were like, oh, you're starting kind of early, like, you're going to encounter some snow. Yeah, we're but nobody, on. nobody was like, you're putting yourselves in a stupidly dangerous situation and you should wait. Yeah. Like everyone was like, well, I hope you're okay with snow travel. And we were. And, you know, I'm okay with snow travel. Yes. In a normal year, we both are, but this was something special. But like I was, yeah, like I was saying, it would have been pleasantly physically t- tough and without the rain, but the rain is what made it unpleasantly dangerous. So right. without the weather system, it would have just been extra physically tough. So it was just, yeah, a weird year for it. Yeah. Knowing that and knowing that you're always balancing the fine line between ultralight or pack weight versus, you know, equipment, gear, extra pair of socks or, or whatever, would you change anything? Um, um, gloves. Yeah, better gloves. I've already, re- I've already replaced my dead puffy. I want my apron. <laughs> he was joking around that he was going to not only set the speed record, but be the first person to two-hike the whole GDT wearing nothing but, like, a kitchen apron. Yeah, post holes would have been very dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a bit silly. Yeah. <laughs> Rivers would have been a bit so, dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> everything would have been a little more um, um Just think of the pack chase. Oh, uh, yeah. Think of the good um, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we could have Yeah, we did. Where? A couple times. Uh, backside of Lexalot Ridge, and then a couple times in Jasper. I don't even remember. Was it hailing on us? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but yeah, for gear, I don't, besides the gloves, like, I really don't think I would have changed out much because I had all the thermals. It's just, they wouldn't get dry. 
Well, like and you didn't layer them correctly. Oh, let's, let's, let's. All right, we've covered that. <laughs> well, unless I could pack out 10 thermals, then I would be happy. But besides that. You didn't bring your thermal bottoms either. I thought I did. Did you? No, you didn't. You left them at home. Oh. Well, if my upper body's warm, I'm usually warm. Yeah. I mean, I hike in snow and shorts all the That's time. That's true. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> what you would have changed out was you wouldn't have brought American flag socks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't the best move. You didn't think about that? No. Um. Yeah, I guess we can go into that. So, I don't know why, but I found darn tough socks that were, like, knee-high America flag socks about, I think it was CDT. Yeah, 2018. I'm like, you know what? They're unique. You don't see many hikers wearing them, and it kind of differentiates on the bigger trails. Like, you, you're not describing, hey, there's a... Guy in front Any of me. white guy with a beard. Yeah, there's a guy in front of me with a beard. It's like, oh, the guy with the American flag socks. So yeah. it differentiated, and then I fell into the habit of wearing them. So when I got to hiking this year, I'm like, oh, okay, I need new socks. So I ordered two new pairs of knee-high American flag socks, and I shouldn't have because, <coughs> excuse me, the looks that I was getting when we would go into town was not the best because. You well, you, be, you weren't supposed to be. Yeah, you Americans be, aren't supposed to be in the country. You be representing, <laughs> um, yeah, that you're from America, especially during the summer months when, like, it was very, people were still very, very. Oh, no, I mean, that? I think people are still, like, nervous about it. I think you yeah. should still not do it. Yeah, oh, I'm not wearing American socks around here anymore. Well, not only did you have America flag socks, you also have an America flag buff and an American flag bandana. Yeah, I kind of sunk into that, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I would change as well, because the looks I was getting from a ranger, too, came up and talked to us, and I had America flag socks on, and you could tell he was, like, kind of questioning what I was doing there, and a lot of people would be like, oh, are you American? I'm like, oh, how'd you know? I didn't know. Yeah. Well, and the thing, too, I think is the context is different in the in the South, where if you're wearing America flag socks, it's like, whoa. I'm not wearing Confederate flag socks, right. so I'm cool. But up here, if you're going around wearing your flag, yeah, you look like really uh, redneck and like you know, yeah, yeah they're gonna make some assumptions. Yeah, yeah, that I are not to, accurate. I need to put more thought into, into what I wear. Well, we've covered that. Yeah, I don't know. I hate to harp on the point. <laughs> so yeah, I wouldn't do American flag socks either. You would have made some a few small changes. I had. Con- Canadian socks, but they were just, they were like skin tight. They were compression socks. They were compression socks. Mm. So every time I wore them, I would know that my feet were going to get frostbit that day because they were so thin. So I had the balance of, okay, can I wear these today? Or am I going to be so uncomfortable that I have to wear the American socks? So it was, yeah, socks would have been changed. Yeah. But yeah, small tweaks, but nothing, no major overhaul of the gear, I don't think. No. Nice. It's just the the gear held up. Yeah. Nice. It's just the weather that that uh, messed with you. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that we should? Well, I don't know if Constantine told you about this, but I guess I'll drop in a plug for my blog. Oh, please. Yeah. So if people are interested um, in having the dual perspective of Constantine's videos, you can actually find my writing on. Um, the easiest place to go is just adventurousmagpie.com. Mm-hmm. And so you'll find my newsletter and my Instagram there. But um, right now the blog is on a bit of a hiatus. So the updates aren't coming, but I will finish writing about the GBT eventually. So 
her her writing when we got off trail, a lot of her friends and family were following her writing because she kept up with it until field, I believe. And one of the articles she wrote was our experience on a misqui where it was like severe hypothermia. And people were like, I couldn't keep reading. Like that really scared me. <laughs> like, yeah, that's like you can feel feel her words and um yeah. It's it's yeah. a good counter kind of counterpoint to counter, Yeah, counterpoint to the videos because I'm kinda of just going there and bumbling and duty doing on trail and you're like, Well, this is actually what happened here, like this is what we went through. So Yeah. Is there anything else you can think of? To touching on? Yeah. Um I kind of, I don't know. I, I like how the conversation went. There's so much stuff to unpack on the GDT that I still think we'll be unpacking it for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we kind of touched on a lot of the stuff. Um, Just kind of went with the flow. Well, and I think that, you know, if, if somebody is really interested in, in the GDT, obviously there is forums and Facebook groups and, and that kind of stuff. And, and yeah. You guys are now a resource for people and peanut is a resource and Brazil nut is a, re- a resource. But the, the thing I love about this is, you know, they can go to Magpie's blog and then you also have your videos, which are actually pretty thorough, I guess. They're very long. <laughs> that's, a, that's what you're trying that's to say. A, that's a nice word. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I mean, on one level, like if you want to, if you have the time to sit there and watch all of them, it, it almost feels a little bit like you are walking the GDT. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I try to bring in all the moments and it's very hard to film in the moments of super uncomfortable. And of course, you're not going to be able to film in the moments of I need all my hands to cross mm-hmm. this river. I need all my hands to go across this uh, snowfield. So it tries to bring in all the moments you can and yeah, it's it's long. Yeah. But it is definitely like a good resource, but I mean, people should also keep in mind that we hiked it in a really unusual year. So our experience is going to be really different than most people. Yeah. 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 And what's so so interesting is that, you know, you say that, but it's sort of like saying on the, on the PCT, Oh, I had a heavy snow year. So it was unusual compared to somebody else's year. And then, two, three years later, oh, there's another another heavy snow year. So, you know, I think hmm. it's kind of I would be relative. Really, I'd be really surprised if the GDT gets, if, if people hike it in a situation like we were, because, I mean... It wasn't the snow. That it wasn't the snow, it was the rain. Like, there were, we had to, to roadblock around a whole section because bridges were out all over Jasper. The Brazos River. The Brazo River Bridge and the Maline River Bridge and like everything. We we got halfway into that section and we had to go out at Nigel Pass because the ranger told us Don't attempt Don't it. do this and he said it was yeah. treacherous. Like there'll be a lot of river crossings that we had to do that probably won't even be rivers again for another five or six years. So it was really extraordinary circumstances. Mm-hmm. And also I don't think anyone would be um like I, I don't think people that are that are looking into it would actually start as early as we did. Yeah. Yeah. Because we had, we had plans built around it, and we were both comfortable with that early start because we knew we were going to get into harder miles, and we were comfortable with that. We did not know what the weather was going to do, so. Yeah, we started people, really pretty early. Like yeah. not many people start that early, even in a lower year. Yeah, so, people but I mean, year. it is true that like you know, the experience of, of there being heavy snow in one or two sections definitely would be present. Yeah. Where can people find you? Uh, 
to follow your continuing adventures or ask you questions. And I guess actually to step back for just a second, you know, obviously there's a previous episode with Ryan where we really talk about all of or most of the trails that he's done. Um, but for you, Magpie, if you can give kind of people a little idea of the different trails that you've done so that they know, you know, what to, what to ask you questions about too, besides just the GDT. Yeah, for sure. So I don't know if this counts as a through hike, but in 2016, yeah, 2016, I rode my bike across Canada twice. That counts as a journey. It counts as a journey. And then 2017, I did that. 2017, I did the CDT. 2018, I did the PCT. Uh, 2019, I did the PNT, a, a chunk of the AT, and then the Arizona Trail. And then this year, I did the Great Divide Trail and Vancouver Island Trail with Constantine. Good memories on the Vancouver Island Trail. <laughs> that's a whole nother. That's a whole nother story. That's a whole nother so, podcast. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm on Instagram as Adventurous Magpie, and you can find my blog through there. Okay, perfect. And uh, Ryan? Oh, yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm on YouTube at Hiking America, all one word. And then we also have a website that we can kind of consolidate all that information in on 11skies.com. And 11skies is spelled S-K-Y-S. I've gotten a lot of jokes around, uh, hey, why is it 11 skis? It was a play on words. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's the kind of info for me. Okay, perfect. And I guess to kind of close us out for today, for each of you, what was your or one of your favorite memories of this wild, crazy adventure that was the GDT this year? I actually think one of my favorite moments, the one that's coming to mind now, is um, Jack Pine Pass. which was, I think, one of the only days that we actually had nice weather and nice trail at the same time. So this is the path before the Jack Pine River Swamp. Um, It was just so remote and so wild, and it was such a joy to be able to just move without having to contend with, like, freezing cold temperatures or bushwhack. And you get up there, and it's just snow as far as the eye can see. You're forging your own path, walking on your own. There's no trail. And you, in every direction, 360 degrees, there's gigantic ranges of mountains mm-hmm. and feel like you're the only the only person on earth. That, that I think, was one of my favorite moments. That was awesome. Yeah. yeah. So what about you? Um, I think it would actually be inside the tent. So we camped at, I think we were three days out, um, we had just started, and we wanted to go over to at the mountain itself, that day, and we got there at like 3 or 4, and the weather was moving in, so we found a little camp spot literally within the saddle of it, and we still had a lot to climb in the morning. And those first three days had really changed our assumption about what this trail would be and what we were getting ourselves into. So we camped, and the favorite moment was the next morning, and... <laughs> All our gear was already soaked, and Magpie's waking up, and all you can see are her eyes because she's wearing a balcava, and we're going through, putting the socks on. I had already put my socks on, so I had already gone through the, oh, this is cold, this is not pleasant kind of moment, and Magpie has balled up all her socks into, like, three pairs. 
So she grabs one and she's like, no. <laughs> and then she grabs the other and she's like, no. I'm like, oh, what's the third one going to do? And she grabs it and she's like, no. And so they were all soaked. And like the, no- <laughs> the noises we started joking around about, yeah, that's what it's going to be like. So. And that was correct. It was very fun. <laughs> it was very funny to have that moment together. And both of us were like smiling within the suck pretty much. And we're just embracing it and being like, this is what the trail's going to be like. We're going to have to find the smiles in these moments, and that's kind of what it turned into. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, can picture, I can picture both of them, actually. Yeah, that kind of uh, exemplifies our two different um, personas, too. I'm like, oh, wow, amazing wilderness experience, <laughs> like spiritual transcendence. Uh-huh. And you're like, it was really funny when your socks were wet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that kind of boiled it down into a nutshell, huh? Yeah, I love yeah. it. <laughs> notes and links for Dana and Ryan's gear can be found on our website at hiking-through.com. A special thanks to Dana and Ryan for sharing their stories from the trail and Maya Wynn for the use of the song Try Again. If you'd like to hear more stories from the Great Divide Trail, then check out episode 53 with Peanut or episode 60 with Brazil Nut. And if the Pacific Northwest Trail is more your jam, then check out episode one with Camel. On next week's episode, I'll be talking with Caitlin Reeser about her JMT and long trail through hikes. I'll catch you on the trail. <laughs>